Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who have great personalities Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, welcome to Wood Talk number 145 for August 21st, 2013. On today's show, we're talking about knowing when a design is right, replacement parts for hand planes, cambering blades, and using waterlocks finish. But before we get to all that, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Today's show is supported by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. And by SawStop. SawStop is North America's number one cabinet saw and the world's safest table saw. Visit sawstop.com 175 to learn more about the professional cabinet saw model that Matt chose for his basement workshop. Then click on Find a Dealer to see the saw in action near you. All right, so let's talk about what's on the bench. Uh, I guess I'll go first. I finished the assembly of the green and green case, so the the blanket chest. I just finished the case, um, and that went pretty well. Just got that done the other day. A lot of screws, which I'm not used to, but... (laughs) Sometimes, you know, somebody's downgrading their joinery. I see <laughs> a lot of screws, um, but yeah, this time it's just uh, very large finger joints on this thing. It's almost, I don't know, it's almost unfair to call them finger joints because there's really only one set. So it's like one, uh, I guess let's call it a male fitting into one very wide. Well, this is going in the wrong direction. Um, <laughs> very. There's Did we a move to frat talk. Is that what this yeah. is? There's a female portion of the joint, but it's like basically one instead of like a series of box joints or finger joints. Um, but it needs reinforcement. There's really no way that thing would hold together for a very long time without the assistance of screws. So a lot of pre-drilling, a lot of screws, and uh, for once under those ebony plugs, there's actually screw heads. Um, so many times in, in green and green work, you'll actually, people are surprised to find out just how few screws there are behind those. And those things are actually, a lot of cases, non-functional. And in this case, they actually do something and they hide the screw heads that keep that case together. So uh, that so went are, pretty well. Are they a specialized uh, a screw or are you just using just some some general one? I didn't know if maybe in the green and green books, there was a specialized green, green no. and green screw that you'd have to get from, say, a... Uh, specialized blacksmith yeah, say no, that, just, that uh, Shannon's familiar no. with. Yeah, one of Shannon's friends would, would be able to cra- craft me a nice screw. Um, no, they're just regular old square drive screws. Um, you know, it's interesting though, there's a picture in one of Daryl Peart's books because a lot of times you don't know what actually was done with some of these things and to prove that there were no screws and, and how they address things like wood movement, they've x-rayed certain parts of the furniture so you could actually see where the screw lies, how deep it is, what kind of pre-drilling was done. Um, but you, you just mentioned that and I was thinking, oh, that's, that is interesting. Some of those pieces, they have actually done that level of investigation to see what, what they put in there, uh, which hmm. is kind of cool. Uh, the other thing is... This particular design, you know how with a blanket chest, a lot of times it's on a deck and and the base itself takes up a lot of the vertical height and you don't gain that back inside the box itself. So, you know, by the time the, the, the box bottom is in place, you wind up losing sometimes two to three inches of potentially usable space. So a lot of people were complaining about it and, uh, well, not complaining, but saying that's, I'd like to regain that space somehow. So they're coming up with different ideas to lower the deck a little bit or lower that inside panel. And I was thinking about it and I'm like, you know what, with that much empty cavity, couldn't we come up with a hidden drawer mechanism? That's just what I was thinking, like some sort of false bottom in there where you just 
Yeah, move it a little bit to the side or something. That would be that would be really really cool, actually. Yeah, exactly. So I've never really done much with hidden drawers, and this is going to be a fairly large hidden drawer, so it's actually going to be pretty practical because a lot of times those hidden drawers are either ridiculously difficult to get to, or they're super duper tiny, and it's like I had my tootsie rolls in here. (laughs) (laughs) What do you put in there? Like a handful of M and M's. Mateo, get in here. Let's hide from mom. (laughs) Yeah. So. So yeah, so um, I was talking with Aaron about it and he goes, you know what you should do? Take the entire, like one of the entire base pieces, which is uh, the base is sort of a uh, interlocking finger jointed base. Take the whole side piece and then that ba- that actually becomes the drawer front so that when you pull this thing out to the side, you get this very nice wide and large drawer that takes up a good amount of space underneath and, and no one just visually, you just wouldn't know what's there. There's no indication whatsoever that it's a drawer. You just tug on it and out comes this, you know, 12 by 16 potentially drawer, which actually has a practical purpose now. So, so wait, uh, kind of like in like a 18th century secretary where like the crown molding just pulls out and it's a drawer. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole thing, I mean, what we're going to have to do is it's probably not a bad idea anyway, just to put maybe little feet on this thing to raise it up, maybe an eighth of an inch off the floor and right. that should be just enough so that you can grab the protruding fingers on the side uh, while well, in the front and back, and then that'll allow you to get enough grip to pull it toward you, and the whole thing should slide forward. Now, would you have recommendations so, uh, the, for, for somebody that has shag carpeting that they might want to raise it a little <laughs> yeah. bit higher? No, you might want to get new carpeting. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's out of style. You might want to put this on its own base so that you don't have to worry about anything getting stuck in it. Yeah, exactly. What were you going to say, Shannon? So essentially those those finger joints, those box joints or whatever in the front are really just kind of faux, in other words. On one side, they would be. Yeah, um, they cool. would There would be an ebony plug there, but no screw underneath it. And oh, come on. You got to put a screw in. You know, if you're going to have... <laughs> You're gonna have faux joints and a faux plug. You might as well put in a real screw. Just, there you go. Just to just so that when they X-ray it 300 years from now, they'll be like, "What the hell well, those, was this guy smoking?" Well, that's and a, why are there like 500 of these made by different people? Right. <laughs> yeah, there'll be a very very uh, well hidden drawer, one that you actually can't open because <laughs> it is screwed. <laughs> it is screwed shut. So nice secret drawers, <laughs> just mean secret drawers. Is that's it, what it is. This one is locked. So um, <laughs> that's awesome. But yeah. That's that's a, I figured that'd be a creative solution for regaining what would be otherwise lost space. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, I haven't gotten into the actual construction because now it's like an afterthought and I've got to, you know, maybe do some sliding dovetails for the drawer to connect into what's now becoming a drawer front that was never intended to be a drawer front. Um, we'll have to see how that goes. So I'll keep you posted. Um, Please do. That sounds awesome. I know, Matt, you're going to be waiting in the wings going, what's, what's going on? What's going on? I'm excited. Yeah, I, I wish I knew what's going on. I would, is there going to be a secret? Do you, do you have to tap twice and then it pops open? How's that going to work? Ooh. I just Ooh, want to know like what that. you're going to put in the drawer. I, I have nothing of importance. Like, what would I put in there? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe like birth certificates or something like that. It might be safer than a safe. Although it's not fireproof, so it's got that uh, problem. But anyway, Matt... Speaking of uh, valuables and things that cost money, you have something about an iPhone case? Yeah, I I do, actually. Uh, Just this past weekend, I was kind of playing around on the internet like I normally do, and I came across a a neat little video. In fact, I'm going to do a post about this uh, so that people can see where I get the inspiration and where Hmm. this video came from. But I saw somebody was making like some, we'll call them customized iPhone cases. It's They're not creating the actual case itself. They're more or less kind of putting 
a skin on it. You know how you can get those like uh, stickers that are basically skins that you can make it, you know, look like whatever you want to on the outside, but it's still just the same, same old plain kind of case, basically. You mean like when you leave your tomato soup out for too long, you get that skin on top? I don't know if I'd go with that one. Um, that might be kind of disgusting, actually. It might be a little smelly. Uh, but in this case, I'm just using some veneers. And I'm using these these veneers that I've had sitting around for ages in my shop from a time when I thought I was actually going to use them previously. And just kind of customizing my own iPhone case with this or smartphone case with this uh, so that it doesn't just have the simple black plastic look. Or in the case of the one that I did create it was elephants all over it which i don't understand that one either because it wasn't like they're in a row and holding each other's tails and doing like that elephant train kind of thing <laughs> uh i borrowed it from my wife and because she didn't want it anymore and so i came up with this neat little pattern and the nice thing about this is this is totally a project that it doesn't take a lot of materials to use uh, i just had like i said some, some simple uh veneers laying around and uh, I've never really done any type of veneer work other than maybe edge banding. So this for me is like killing two birds with one stone. I'm getting a project out of it. And then I'm actually kind of uh, creating something that's useful. So it's, it's kind of fun. I posted a couple pictures on uh, Facebook of it. And my wife likes it, but I don't think she's actually going to use it because she's like, it's not really my color. <laughs> nice. <laughs> So, but the process is like really, really sim simple. It's easy. And the neat thing is, like I said, I'm going to be posting a, a video about this. Or actually, I should say I'm going to be posting the video of the person that uh, kind of who I took the idea from them. Um, it, I'm going to be putting that up in the next day or so. And this is the wooden iPhone or woodenphonecase.com, I do believe is his website. And I just saw the other day that he's no longer taking orders at the moment because he's returning to college and doesn't have a shop at, at the moment, so he can't do any more. Hmm. But he was just using basically edge banding to kind of create these decorative-looking uh, phones. So oh. it was something neat. Neat idea. And a lot of people, I've had people ask questions about that, like, oh, you're going to make an uh, iPhone case? And if you're constructing the whole thing, you know, top to bottom, oh and it's gosh. like, there's so, so much to it that, and the accuracy level is something I don't know that I could ever duplicate using the tools that we have. I mean, that stuff is cut by machines to perfection. So exactly. Like, yeah. But, I've had a few people ask me that too. They're like, did you actually make the case? I'm like, no, I uh, went to the dollar store, actually picked up a couple of plastic ones for a buck or so just to experiment <laughs> with this. My biggest problem at the moment is once I tried the first one, and I'm sure so many other people are like this, I'm sure we, the three of us are like this at some point, you try the first thing, which is really nice and easy, it's a basic design, all that good stuff, and then suddenly you just jump in and are like, I'm going to do the Mona Lisa all in veneers. <laughs> I'm going to overcomplicate <laughs> this completely. <laughs> <laughs> so totally. uh, the second and third attempt where I really – I didn't quite do the Mona Lisa, but I went way beyond my current ability. Um, now I know what not to do, and the next time I come back, I will be able to approach it with a little bit of a, a, a better concept of where I am currently. But I then know where I want to go, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Nice. So yeah, so it was, it was definitely a lot of fun. And uh, I don't know, maybe people get them for Christmas. You, I don't want to spoil it for you guys. Mm, nice. Ooh. I do have an iPhone, you know. Yeah. So, but anyways, that's what I've been doing. And Shannon, you're finishing up some carving. Is that what's going on here? Or you're carving a turkey? Yeah. Carving a turkey. Ooh, that'd be good right now. Mm, I could deal I with that. I don't, well, um, I don't know what that one. I'm starving. I'm still juicing this week. <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> I think I've lost 10 pounds, but... Um, I, I, I think my t taste buds are so 
uh, tweaked right now that somehow <laughs> celery, orange juice, and apple, along with a carrot and maybe some kale, taste really good. Tastes like a steak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's times I'm like, mm, this pulp is so chewy. It would be awesome with a one. Oh man, nice. So, well, but anyways, back to you, Shannon. Juice a steak or juice a hot dog or something. Come on, don't those juicers pretty much juice anything? Well, actually, now that you've mentioned it, um, Sam is going to be going away for the weekend, and her juicer is staying home with me. And there are some things that I'm like, let's see, try a porterhouse. Uh, <laughs> if I put it on high and I slowly feed it in, will I get the same effect? <laughs> it's, it's like those YouTube commercials, the Will It Blend, that like super blender where they would yeah. just like throw iPads in the blender to see if they'd blend it. Will it will you juice? Yeah, <laughs> what like can that. we juice? Come on. Nice. I think for my own sanity, though, I'm going to cook the steak first. I don't know if I – otherwise, I think that juice would just simply be oh, blood. God, I want dude. like au jus and everything else going in there. Uh, this is gross. Anyway, while I was out of town last week, and just for the record, it's not my vacation home. <laughs> It doesn't belong to me. I can barely yeah. pay my own mortgage, let alone a second vacation home. I was at my in-laws' vacation home. So you're saying you actually listened to the last episode then? <laughs> <laughs> I laughed myself silly through the whole thing. What are you talking about? Um, actually, I listened to it while I was in Maine, um, nice. and it was uh, it was pretty dang funny. Um, but I guess part of my... Um, I, I paid my room and board up there by agreeing to carve a couple of signs. Just about all the the houses up there, there. I mean, there's only one road that runs around the island, and then there's like these dirt roads that lead to another dirt road, which leads to a path, which leads to the house. So there's always a series of signs from the main road, so people can find the house. So I had to carve one with my in-laws' last name on it, and then carve another because all the houses up there have names. You know, they're all Skipper's Landing or Sailor's Delight or something like that. Shannon and, Shanty. Yeah, no. Buffy's watch. <laughs> they are calling theirs the runaway dog, which I think is an allusion to a poem about how carefree living is like a runaway dog or something like that. So I took a, a picture of their golden retriever, did it in silhouette, and carved in the letters on it. Well, needless to say, I, I didn't get it done <laughs> in the week that I was there. So I had to bring it home, and I've got to finish it up and ship it up to the main so they can hang it on a tree. And I told them I'd get it done by the end of the week. So I'm, I'm carving away. Nice. Yeah, and it's kind of fun. Completely, completely I'm, with, with, with chisels. I mean, you're not using any type of routers or stuff like that. This is like doing the stuff <laughs> no. that you would see like uh, Mary May teaching kind of a thing. Actually, yeah. Um, considering she's the one who taught me how to do this. That's okay. exactly That's what I how would you would expect it. No, it's just a just couple, you know, I think I'm using about four or five chisels total because you know, I didn't have, by the time we had packed all the stuff that we were supposed to take up for my in-laws, there was like no room left in the car. It was basically shoved the dog and me into the back seat with like a bowl of food that we were supposed to share for the week. And that was about all we had. So I, I took five carving chisels and discovered when I got up there that there was no place to like actually work. So I ended up clamping the board to the side of this big, heavy, like flower planter just made out of wood uh, on top of a wooden bench mm, nice. leaned up against the railing of the deck. So it wobbled all over the place. It was, it was, um, gave me new respect and very, very happy to have the bench that I have in my shop because that was not fun. 
Well, and it also reminds you, like when whenever you first start out, and we we talk to these people all the time, folks who are just getting into the craft, and they don't have the perfect setup. They barely have any setup, you know. But they they want to do this stuff, and you don't let that stop you. You just figure it out. You get what tools you can, and you you go. You start working, and then eventually you build up to to a better shop with better tools and, and new techniques and stuff. But um, absolutely, you know, you know and. I specifically took some photographs of it because there will probably be a blog post at some point about it because I was actually pretty proud of my ghetto workbench. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. a couple of things stacked on their sides with a you know one of those Irwin quick clamp, squeezy clamp things, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and just kind of clamping it all together so it wouldn't rock. And you know you take all that big rickety assembly like a Jenga tower and lean it up against a stable wall of a building, and there you go. There's <laughs> your workbench. Nice. And it had a great view of a lighthouse in the ocean. It was. Very nice. You cannot beat a shop with a view. Exactly. Totally. Very nice. All right, cool. Well, let's jump into what's new. We got a couple things, some stuff that was sent in. Uh, Matt, how about you take those? Okay, well, this first one came in from Justin, and he sent us a video over on YouTube, which features Ben Orford, and he's making a spatula on a kick butt. I'm going to I'm gonna clean that one up because it's actually a different word. A kick butt looking shave horse, and he thought that we'd appreciate it. So I had a chance to check this out, and it's always fun just to see you know, a, a fellow woodworker who is just doing something that's really different. I mean, uh, a spatula, making a spatula out of wood. I don't know how different that is, but it's always fun watching them. Uh, do the hand tool thing. That's why I have so much fun coming in and secretly watching Shannon while he's doing all of his his hand tool stuff. So Ben Orford, Ben Orford's the real thing, though. If you haven't seen his channel, check him out. Hey Definitely guys, subscribe. I have to pick up this this call, but continue talking amongst yourselves. Okay. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so uh, anyways, yeah, I agree. Ben Orford had some really great videos over there. Definitely highly recommend. It's very entertaining. And on top of it, you actually learn something. So good on you. Yeah, he's got some good stuff on sharpening. And I think he's more of a bladesmith than a woodworker. Okay. Um, Well, I I mean. I was kind of wondering about that because for some reason, that's the the impression I got from him also. Yeah. And, And don't take that to mean he's not a good woodworker. I think, I mean, he sells blades. He sells knives and axes and things like that. So I think he makes his living more on the um the metal smithing side of things but he's he's part of that kind of um green woodworking craze that's over in Great Britain that I've started to tap into a little bit ever since I built my pole lathe and uh you got to have respect for those guys i mean they they literally walk out into the forest cut down a tree and make something out of it which is just cool so they're like, like the, the what the uh bear grills of woodworking is that where they're going yeah with that? there you go absolutely that dude's right, well, awesome as soon as I see you know him getting water out of a uh, a pile of elephant pooey for a sharpening stone, I'm out of there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You have to All let right. the, the elephant dung dry before you try to sharpen with it. Okay, well, there you go. All right, well, let's move on to the next link. The next one we have here is from Steven, and we talked a little bit about, about this off-air, but this is to a site called opendesk.cc is the, the URL, and essentially this is uh, their downloadable uh, plans that you can get if you have, say, a CNC machine and you can create all these various furniture that they have on the uh, the website itself. Now, as of right now, I'm going to try and bring this up real quick, uh, but I know they have like a desk, they have a couple of different stools, and like I said, you can download the plans. You, If you have a CNC or access to it, you can create these pieces yourself using the plans that you get from them, or you can even go so far as to 
if there happens to be somebody in their database, they will find somebody for you. Just put in your loca- locale and you can hire somebody to make these plans f- or create these components for you or even simply create the components for you and then mail them to you. And, or you can even go so far as they'll build them for you. It's almost kind of like an Ikea kind of a thing. In fact, I think that's one of the references they make in there is you can get them Ikea style where it gets shipped to you in a box all flat folded and you can assemble it yourself. So pretty neat looking designs in here. I, I really love that idea of uh, finding a piece that you like. And as they're saying, it's open source furniture made locally is kind of like their, their you know catchphrase there. This makes me think of this is like the precursor to the Star Trek replicator. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> basically what you're saying is you, you buy this. And of course, if you have this is assuming you have a CNC machine um, here. Here's basically the data. You know, you download the data and, you know, plug it into your CNC and zerp, out comes a piece of furniture you just have to put together. You know, that that's like that's like the first step yeah. towards eventually saying, you know, Earl Grey, tea, hot, you know, and, <laughs> exactly. and there it comes out. You know, I, I think we're you throw in things like 3D printers into this mix. And essentially, this is a look into the future where eventually, just like we buy music now. You know, no one actually buys CDs anymore. This mm-hmm. is what's happening. No one's going to go out and buy furniture anymore. You just download it, and it spits out of a machine somewhere. Part Absolutely. of me is appalled by this, and part of me is just like, this is so cool. I know. I feel the same exact way because there's that, there is that part of me that's kind of like, you know, oh, man, it just, it's, it's taking away a little bit of the, mm-hmm. the, the, the craftsmanship-y side of it and stuff. But at the same time, I see designs in here that I'm like, this would so totally make it easier for me than having to travel to a local Ikea. And I, I know Sam would like this, and she'd like this. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, there is something very interesting about a lot, of, especially the designs on this site, because they're, they're almost like puzzle pieces. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the way they're designed. The CNC spits them out, and you just assemble them together. So in a lot of ways, at least some of the designs I was looking at, they use things like tusk tenons and things like that. You know, I, I think there certainly is some in there where you just screw it together or whatever, but most of it is meant to pack flat and slip it all together. So how can you really complain? You know, it's using good joinery. So mm-hmm. that's what, exactly. What, what did I miss? It, Oh, we were talking about the open desk, the, the whole thing speed, with the CNC guys. machines. <laughs> I was just kidding. All right. Oh, <laughs> well, why did I even try to tell you what's going on? <laughs> I don't know why you did. Okay. Well, one thing I, I, I did a quick look on here and it looks like a lot of the people, uh, they have makers in here. So these are the, the people that will do the CNC work for you. I noticed most of them are like in the UK. There's a lot of, uh, there's one in Scotland, there's a number in England. Um, so maybe they're slowly making their way this way. One thing I think is neat about this is perhaps if you find a CNC person who's on the list, uh, I'm pretty confident that you could probably be like, you know, hey, what else can you make me? <laughs> there you go. Well, it packs flat, so no complaints. They could ship it. Exactly. There you go. There you go. Yeah. While you're sending me that whole desk, I would also like, um, <laughs> here's my list. Nice. All right. Uh, moving into kickback, it's where you tell us some stuff and things about stuff and things we said in the past or talked about on the show. And there's a couple here, Matt. You could do some more talking now. This is your oh. your part of the show, man. Okay. Well, let me get my voice all ready for this one. Well, actually, with this kickback, in the last episode, uh, Josh, Brian, and Lamar all sent in uh, information for us regarding the question that we had about uh, the flammable. Flammable? Flammable. 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 <laughs> about the uh, flammable. Uh, uh, cabinet that uh, somebody had, had, had 
asked us about. Oh my gosh, that totally threw me off. I was going to go with flannel at I one think, point. I think I put too much, right. there was too much, I put too much pressure on you, didn't I? <laughs> you did. I'm like, I can't do this. <laughs> so anyways, though, Josh definitely of the ones that sent it in, he really, really kind of put everything together and I'm just going to go ahead and read his. And he says, after a discussion of flammable storage in episode 144, I thought I'd throw in my two cents on fire safety for the wood shop since firefighting is my day job. Now, a quick disclaimer from Josh. He says, this advice applies to hobbyist workshops only. Commercial shops should follow applicable local Local fire codes. I can't believe I got applicable right, but I can't get flammable right. <laughs> so a less expensive option for a flammables cabinet is to manufacture one yourself out of wood. Manufactured out of one-inch plywood with rabbited joints and painted with inflammable paint, these will provide excellent protection and can meet OSHA and NFPA, which is the National Fire Protection Association standards for flammable storage. You can find the specifications in NFPA number 30 literature, which is flammable and combustible liquids code. And as an aside, most people don't understand that flammable cabinets are primarily intended to keep the contents stored within from providing additional fuel to an exterior fire. Mm -hmm. However, an airtight cabinet can slow or contain small contents fires. Uh, one option would be to add sheetrock to the interior as it's an excellent heat insulator. And then he also threw in some uh, fire safety tips uh, for you to consider too, which is like something as simple as keeping your shop clean is your primary defense against fire. Uh, an inexpensive ABC-rated extinguisher is important to have, and they should be located near an exit. Uh, fire alarms are an excellent tool for early detection of a fire, especially if your shop is connected to a living area like most garage renovations are. However, smoke detectors are a poor choice for a dusty environment since they can't tell the difference between smoke particles and airborne dust. Thus, a heat detector will provide early detection while minimizing the chance of false alarms. Another excellent option is a smoke detector on the house side of the, of the door leading to the garage. So not actually in the workshop, but uh, just outside of it. And he also recommends that for new construction, residential fire sprinklers have proven to save lives and limit property damage at minimal cost when compared to the cost of construction. So it's definitely mm -hmm. worth investigating. In fact, he's saying perhaps Shannon should consider it for one of his many vacation homes. <laughs> just, well, he's got I'm the money. Saying. Clearly got so, the money. And then one more thing is uh, since Lamar was uh, in on this also, he included a link to a article over at AmericanWoodworker.com where they have plans for one of those flammables cabinets that you can make yourself. So some really great feedback. Thank you again to uh, Brian, Josh, and Lamar for all the great information. The fire retardant paint is pretty cool. I didn't really, yeah. know, I didn't really even think about or know about that. So, and the fact that he's saying it's not so much something you know blowing up inside the box as it is that you know fanning, <laughs> fanning the flames, <laughs> pun intended, uh, but that you know making the fire that much worse. So keeping fire out of the box, not so much, you know, not so much preventing it from getting out of the box. Right, right. Interesting. He, he actually brings up a good point that I did. I, didn't know this at the time, but I learned it the hard way about smoke detectors are they can't tell the difference between smoke and airborne dust because uh, mm -hmm. I don't have a smoke detector in my shop, but there's one in the laundry room just off my shop. And one time when I was emptying my dust collector, I accidentally dropped the bag, like oh, removed no. it from the collector and then dropped it. So it, it wasn't nearly as catastrophic as it sounded. It didn't dump over anything, but you imagine taking a full bag and dropping it about three feet. So it's this enormous poof of dust that went into the air. <laughs> yeah. And my smoke detector started going off. And I thought, ah, oh, damn, the battery's out. So I actually went in, replaced the battery, and it was still going off. And I was so pissed because, of course, you know, 
no one loves the sound of a smoke detector. It's not it's not a pleasant sound, especially and, animals. Yeah, exactly. Totally. And I finally figured that out by the, using the Google machine. That yeah, it it can't tell the difference between dust and um, smoke. So there you go. Don't put a smoke detector in your shop. Wow, I didn't know that. Put are a they fire all, extinguisher? In your are shop. they all like that, or is it just certain types that? It, oh, I'm sure that there's probably better ones now. But yeah. I mean, I. I just recently, like in the last week, replaced all my smoke detectors so that I was up to code because they were probably like 1950s circa smoke mm-hmm. detectors here. Nice. Yeah, so, well, uh, in, in Josh's kickback, he mentioned that it's the uh, the photo ionization ones that are the poor choice for a dusty environment. So maybe go. those are the ones we want to st- stay away from. That's Good a big word. <laughs> it is. I know. Once again, I tripped over it too. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Okay, moving on to our emails, uh, a little email heavy this week, so let's jump into it. The first one is actually a question that I think we can all uh, talk about a little bit here. Uh, This is from Dustin. He says, as much as I love the actual work in woodworking, I'm equally interested in the design aspect of a project. I think this is one aspect that majorly differentiates an excellent project from a very amateur one. My question to you all is this. When you look at a project, what are the features that you see that make it quote-unquote look right? I've seen professional-level stuff that had crazy difficult joinery and techniques, but didn't look good to my eye. And I've seen people screw pallet wood together uh, to make a chair that looked really good. What are the practices that you use in designing your own stuff to make it look good? That's an, that's an awesome question. I think what's a little bit tricky about it is that it's a very subjective thing. Like he said, right. something he saw that other people perhaps thought looked good because of the complexity of the joinery or whatever it was, just didn't look right to him. So I think even like, do you guys agree with me that even when you design something correctly or, or, you know, follows certain rules proportionally looks good. If you really go out on a limb with it, you probably will at best please about half of the people who look at it. Whereas the other half are going to not be that they just, it's not going to agree with them. Um, Yeah. You know, so, so, and that's if you're trying to do something new and different if you mm-hmm. just kind of play it safe and you're doing more traditional looking stuff, you could probably get a much higher percentage acceptance rate just because it doesn't, there's nothing offensive about it. <laughs> you're not taking any risks. You know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. But I, I think that kind of gets to the heart of his question, though. When you get to that plain, to use your words, the plain, simple stuff. Yeah. That's breaking down to the purest form, you know, and that's what, and that's when you're getting into like the George Walker, Jim Tolpin proportion type thing. Mm -hmm. You know, George Walker's big thing in whole number ratios, that's what makes furniture look good. Yeah. Um, I think where a lot of times, especially lately, where a lot of us get in trouble is we tend to know too much. You know, things like Pinterest and, and Google have exposed us to so many different things. I see this a lot with green and green. Um, you know, you've seen that green and green piece where it's like every damn green and green element is, is incorporated into the piece and it's All like, smashed Oh, look, in. here's, here's the Gamble <laughs> Thorson, you know, uh, Proctor, Proctor, yeah, Proctor, um, to take all the houses together and integrate all those elements. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't look good, wait, wait, oh, but whoa, it's whoa, classic whoa. green and green. Was that, no. was that a police Academy reference? Yes, it was. Nice. Thank you for getting that. Well done, sir. That. Well done. <laughs> I'm glad someone was with me. Okay. Um, but another thing is also, I think, in the wood choices. And I actually, I snapped a couple of pictures at a gallery that I stopped in last week. There's this one gallery in um, a little town in Maine, and it's like that really, really she-she. They're obviously targeting like the really, really affluent um, sailboat community. Mm-hmm. And 
I love going in there because half the stuff is just like, seriously, like people buy this and (laughs) you know, it's, it's like that that's art, you know, that they just splattered some paint on a wall and they're considering it art. And there was a bench in there that look at the wood. It was like the most highly figured Pamele Supili or Bubinga rather that you've ever seen with the most highly figured quilted maple for the top with three different colors of stringing inlay a hummingbird inlay in the bubinga, and it was just like this is the most hideous, god awful thing I have ever seen. Too much there of a good just, thing, right? Yeah, there was just so much crap in there that it just looked terrible. Well, so, is there a practice here? Like he says, what what kind of practice do you employ to make sure it looks good? For me, I think what this comes down to is your eye becoming better. Because it's one thing to look at something and say, well, that doesn't quite look right. It's so much easier to do that on someone else's stuff. When you're, yeah. do, like when you're doing it yourself, you tend to put blinders on just based on the fact that you're the one doing it and you lose your perspective on it. So I could tell them that, that one thing that, that I do that I find that helps is walking away from the design for a while. If I give myself, a, like if I'm not sure about the direction or I don't like the direction something is going, I will walk away for uh, a couple of days and then go back to it and try to look at it from a fresh perspective because it's that new perspective that really tells you the most about it. Once you're in it and you, you're kinda, you can't see the forest for the trees kind of situation, that's when it becomes very difficult to judge your own work. And I think as you get better, as I get better, I know I'm getting uh, much better at being able to see those problems while I'm in the thick of it as opposed to after it's too late when someone tells me, oh, that just looks terrible. You should have made that apron you know, uh, more narrow or those legs should have been thicker. I start to see those things faster and sooner in the process. And that's what's making a difference for me, which is only time and experience that can add to that. That's very true. Like When it comes to anything where you have to really look at it what you're talking about with the whole visualization i always think about like uh something even like a curve you know is, is this curve right is this does mm-hmm. this look like it's a really good curve yeah. and it's one of those things where you have to trust your eye more than like say the machinery or something like that because i've had curves that i've made that just you know what if i take some feeler gauges or whatever instrument i'm using to measure it it is dead on but then i look at it with my eye and i'm like ah, something looks like it's off yeah. You know, we don't trust ourselves, our intuition when it comes to any type of design and stuff like that. I am a firm believer in it. it, it less is more, except mm-hmm. when it comes to my dinner plate, when more is more and that's, that's all important. But, you know, really when it comes down to it, less is more does get you where you need to go. And if you need to add a little embellishment, make it small things like those things that we were just describing, Shannon, you know, where they've got like one of everything. It almost yeah. sounds like this person's like, um... I need to make a punch key out of wood. So let's just take everything in the cupboard and just shove it in and see what happens. And we'll call it art. There you go. Nice. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's tough. I I think we're, Mark, you just said this, we're better at what we don't like. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think you can use that to your advantage. You know, I don't like this. So what's the opposite of that? You know, it's not always the answer, but I think that's a, a, a good place to go. Well, speaking of Walker, it ties into a uh, thing that I, I think it was in one of the, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the recent issues of Popular Woodworking in his column. He spoke to that where he said most people have trouble finding the sweet spot, but how do you how do you find an, an actual practice? How do you find a sweet spot? You look for uh, something that's definitely not right 
on one end of the scale, then something that's definitely not right on the other end of the scale. And at least now you've narrowed down somewhere in the middle. There is the ballpark of where you need to be. And you just keep, (laughs) you keep fine tuning it where you go a little under or a little over and then find that middle point. And, and that's how he's, he recommends you discover something that looks right to your eye and use your, your ability to judge uh, you know, proportions of parts that way. So I thought it was a really clever way to do it when you're stuck. You just go a little lower, a little higher, and then see what's what's in the middle. Huh. Uh, all right, let's cool. go on to the next one. I know we had a bunch of emails, but this show got longer than we thought it was going to be, guys. So <laughs> let's let's uh, each let's pick one from here on out. Uh, Shannon, you want to take your first one? Sure. <clears throat> this is from Robert. He says I have several hand planes that I have rescued and eventually will restore. They vary from a Craftsman Dunlop number five, a Bailey number five, and uh, a Keen Cutter number eight. Um, <clears throat> his question is: He realizes he's going to have to mail order irons because these are kind of cheap irons, and he's a little unsure as to what to order. Uh, essentially, because he's got kind of off-brand. I'm um, doing air quotes there. <laughs> I love it when I do visual things on an audio show. <laughs> off-brand. Planes, you know, Keen Cutter, um, Dunlop, uh, Bailey's not really an off brand, but he brought up the point that when he's done some research, he's found, you know, look for a Stanley or a Lee Nielsen replacement. And he was a little concerned that will that work for these quote off brand planes? And the answer is they may be off brand, but they're basically a direct copy of the Stanley Bailey pattern. Mm. Uh, Lee Nielsen is a copy of that Bailey pattern. Wood River frankly, is a direct copy of Lee Nielsen. Um, so going to, you know, buying a vintage Stanley plane or buying a replacement blade from Lee Nielsen or Ron Hawk, um, and I think Ron's probably got it dialed in the best because he doesn't actually make planes, he just makes blades. Um, so if you are concerned or not really sure, um, my recommendation is contact Ron Hawk and he'll set you up. Um, he knows what he's talking about. But I don't think you're going to have any problem matching that. The other thing I'll mention is um, my favorite antique tool pimp, Josh Clark at hyperkitten.com, now has a parts section of his website. So you can actually just go and buy parts. So you might be able to save a little bit of cash and just buy the blades from Josh that way. Hmm. So there you go. Josh, that'll be 20 bucks. (laughs) Boom. Just like that. All right, Matt. All right, sweet. Well, I'm going to go ahead and I have another one that is actually hand plane related. And this one came in from Chris and he says, I just bought a Stanley S5 steel body jack plane from my local Habitat for Humanity Restore. It came with two irons and two chip breakers. How should I sharpen the irons to get the most versatility out of my new plane? I'd like to sharpen each of the blades for different jobs. Should I have one straight blade and one cambered? What types? Uh, what types of work should I do with each of these blades? Uh, how much camber should I sharpen it? What radius is that? So, in other words, I think Chris is asking about cambers. Well, it seems to be where this question is going. And what I ended, I wrote back Chris and I told him, well, look, when it comes to jack planes, for me, my jack plane normally I use it for rough work primarily. That in fact, that's almost all I use it for. So I have one blade that has a very heavy camber on it. In fact, it almost resembles the blade of a scrub plane. So this means I can really hog off shavings to get get it ready for moving on to flattening with either my jointer plane or if I'm going to run it through my thickness planer. Now, I'm sure there's a more specific arc that I could could mention, but uh, when it comes to getting that camber profile on, for my own plane, I just worked the corners until they were lower than the middle. I know that's extremely vague, but 
that's essentially what I did. I'm, this is just a really rough blade when it comes down to it. In fact, I might have even gone so far as to say there's about eh, one thirty second of an inch to one sixteenth of an inch lower on each corner than it is in the middle. So if you hold a nice little square edge up uh, over it, you'll see that right there in the middle, you'll notice on both sides, it, it's much, much lower. You get a lot of daylight in there. And when I did this, I achieved this pretty much mostly on my bench grinder to really hog away as much of that material as possible. And then I honed it on my stones, which took a little practice because I did it freehand. But I'm sure if you have, if you don't take off that much material, you could easily do this, say, with a cambered roller, uh, say, like the, the the Veritas one out there, the MK2. Or if you have one of those, like, little ellipse ones with the smaller wheel, you can easily put a lot of pressure on each corner, and you'll be able to achieve pretty much kind of the same thing. Now, the other blade, this is going to be completely on the opposite spectrum opposite end of the spectrum here um that blade is as straight across as i can possibly get it uh and this one is used sometimes again for when i, I can use it as a jointer so perhaps my material is a little bit shorter than really is justifies using my jointer plane on uh or sometimes when i'm using it on my shooting board this is the blade i would prefer to have versus that really heavy cambered blade and because i don't use my jack as a smoothing plane i don't ever worry about adding a slight camber to uh help alleviate the plane uh the plane marks you know like you would normally do where you kind of uh nip off the edges a little bit say with your smoothing plane i just if i have uh, little marks left over from it and this is what i'm going to use as my last one i just head over to like use a smoother or a card scraper to kind of even out those edges so when it comes to that camber just go to town on it <laughs> i mean if you really want to hog things away make it look like a uh, a scrub plane blade which is almost kind of like a spoon yeah it's, that's pretty severe Yep, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I don't think there really is a radius for it. I'm sure somebody could measure it for us. Lots, well, of, lots of it. My, my four plane is an eight-inch radius. That makes a difference. My scrub plane is a three-inch radius. And, and there you go. There's I the just radius. measured. Just now. Just measured. So. <laughs> nice. All right. It's probably not three inches. It's probably like 3.17, whatever. Three-inch. Yeah, it's three-ish. <laughs> and and eight-ish. So, yeah, whatever that is. All right. Uh, last question we have here is from Matt. He says, I'm finishing our new home in Cordesan, White Oak. That's awesome. I'm Ooh. considering fuming and uh, then top coating with water locks finish. It appears to be an oil resin that's used in a marine industry. They, co- they company website, state that it can be renewed and refreshed with a simple top coat. I like that better than having to sand strip poly off in 15 years. If it works out that it may become my, then it may become my go-to finish. Do any of you have experience with this product? Any recommendations? I don't have a lot of specific experience with water locks. I've only purchased it maybe two times and it was because of the availability. I think it was only sold at Woodcraft at the time. They didn't have it at Rockler. So it was just a little trickier for me to get. So I always went with like Armor Seal with the general finishes stuff. Um, just to give you a, a slight correction there, the water locks material that most people know and love is actually just a diluted varnish. So it's like a wiping varnish, very similar in a way to Armor Seal. Uh, so, so if it's going to dry fairly quickly and doesn't stay wet on the surface, that's that's one of the big indicators that tells you that there's really no um, oil in the final mixture. Of course, tongue oil was made to use it, and it's got a very high quality resin. So there's there's the reasons why Waterlox is so damn expensive is because it's you know it's a higher quality material, but ultimately you're still just looking at a wiping varnish. So if they say that it could be refreshed, that's kind of like just about any 
varnished surface can can be freshed, refreshed. I'm sorry, as long as it's not uh, a couple conditions there, as long as it's not in terrible condition uh, with flaking or lifting from the surface, which which tells you it would need to be stripped and redone. And as long as you haven't used a crap load of like waxy cleaning products and things on it, <laughs> you know, that is something that's going to prevent you from putting another fresh coat on there. So just about any of these varnishes that we have, you technically could just lightly sand a surface, clean it up, and then recoat it 10 years from now if you wanted to. I don't think Waterlocks necessarily has anything magical about it that allows it to do that. But the one thing is with these wiping varnishes, we tend to apply them much thinner than we do. By nature, it's already thin, so you you do the same number of coats, you're physically putting about half the amount of resin on the surface. So you're not really building up a thick plastic film, and that type of surface tends to be a little bit more friendly to recoating over the years because you're not actually putting that much on there. Um, so there's you know less of a chance of there being problems with the, the thickness of the finish itself uh, and flaking and all that stuff. So um, so, so I don't think it's necessarily something specific to Waterlocks, but Waterlocks is a very, very good product. Uh, and I think actually it's a great product for, for house trim and things like that because you probably, I don't know, I haven't been doing this stuff long enough to say from experience, but from what I understand with these finishes, you may not have to touch them in 15 years. Um, right. As long as everything is kept nice in the house and taken care of, I can't see why the finish would deteriorate. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but um, so yeah. So the, it's a good product. Well, just wait till Mateo gets a little bit older and it starts running around. <laughs> good point. Good point. Um, yeah, well, I have a couple of customers who up in the Hamptons <clears throat> that use this on exterior trim up there, and mm-hmm. it's their go-to finish. I have no experience with it other than to say that I know guys who make enormously expensive houses in the Hamptons that use it on their exterior finishes. Well, I don't know. I didn't get that. Maybe maybe I misread this. I know he made mention to the marine industry, but I didn't get that he was doing this for outdoor woodwork no, in the house. No, or? I'm just saying as as far as a if it can survive that and you know lasting a long time. Okay, if it lasts a long time, like on the on the water, <laughs> yeah, then it, it probably sh- will do all right inside. Yeah, okay. And I, honestly, I'm not even going to comment on exterior applications with water locks. I don't really know how much people use it for that, but uh, most of the time, I hear it with reference to furniture, uh, millwork, and stuff inside the house. So. Uh, but yeah, there's that. Have either of you ever used water locks? I nope. haven't as of yet, but it's pricey. Sounds man. interesting. Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, I just I just looked it up. It was like the marine finish or whatever was like $130 a gallon. Hey yo. Yes. Mm, yeah, I'm gonna add that to my list. <laughs> okay. My my Amazon wish list, which people can easily fulfill. <laughs> and true. and I wouldn't put that in a flammables cabinet. I would put that in like a safe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no kidding. <laughs> All right, so we did get uh, one iTunes review, but hey, if you want to leave us an iTunes review, you can do that. Just go into the iTunes store and uh, look us up. Look for Wood Talk and click on that Ratings and Reviews button. You could leave us a four-star, five-star, anything less than four we won't accept. It just won't take it for some reason. It's really weird. Um, That is kind of weird. I wonder how we got that in place. (laughs) It just won't do it. I don't know. Uh, But you could leave us a review and uh, maybe even ask Matt how you spell flammable. (laughs) Uh, it starts with the flim. Start with flannel and just add some. I don't know. There you go. And uh, you could leave us a review like Engineer and Wood did. He says, "Gets my butt down in the shop to build some stuff. Whenever I don't feel what? Whenever I don't feel like just getting down to the shop and building things, I crank up the wood talk and the antics of the three amigos keep me informed about all things woodworking and get me motivated to actually get some projects done." 
Very nice. <laughs> In other you words, know, it, I can do better than these guys. <laughs> <laughs> these guys are idiots. <laughs> it's funny because that's one of the reasons why I go down to the shop. Is I'm like, man, I need something to talk about on the bench. I don't want to just say I moved dust again. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Just a quick reminder that today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com and SawStop at SawStop.com. And uh, would like to thank Charles M. for signing up for a, a small recurring donation. We always appreciate that. Actually, he may have done a one-time donation. I'm not sure. But either way, either way. <laughs> whatever you did, thanks, Charles. We appreciate that. Uh, if you want to help out, too, you can do that at woodtalkshow.com. Look on the left-hand column. There's a few links there for recurring donations and a one-time donation. If you want to help out, chip in a little bit for the price of a cup of coffee. Matt can, uh, I don't know, what do you want to do with that with that 50 cents, Matt? I'm gonna I'm gonna purchase myself a dictionary app that I can just <laughs> say the words and hopefully they'll be able to spell it for me and do proper autocorrection. There you go. All right. Well, uh, I think we can probably get out of here. Let's give them that contact info. All right, folks. Hey, do you have a comment, a question, or topic suggestion? You have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail. I don't know why something like stopped at Wood Talk. <laughs> Wood Talk. We're Wood Talk. Just call us. Uh, our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. Or you can leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com where all the good stuff is happening mm-hmm. as of right now. That is so true. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful woodworking week, and we'll catch you next time. Yeah. See ya. See ya. about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.